Psalm 51, we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 13. David writes, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then you shall offer bulls on your altar. If sin is the worst thing that has ever happened to humanity, then salvation is the best thing that has ever happened to humanity. Psalm 51 began with conviction and confession in verses 1 through 6. And then the psalm continued with cleansing and concern of a broken heart in verses 7 through 12. And now David will write about the commitments and the confidence of brokenness, which leads to consecration in verses 13 through 19. So what is David's confidence? This becomes one of the most important statements that I could possibly make to you. David's confidence is that God can forgive sin. This should be important to each and every one of you. Your confidence must be that God can forgive sin. David has appealed to God in verses 1 through 2. He's acknowledged his sin in verses 3 through 6. I recognize my shameful deeds. He writes, in that confession, David asks God to do three things. Remove my sin in verse 7. Restore my joy in verses 8 and 9. Renew my spirit in verse 10. And then David pleads that God won't remove the Holy Spirit and that David would be willing to obey God in verses 11 and 12. It was Vance Havner, who's a former chaplain to the United States Senate, who wrote, God uses broken things, broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It's the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Peter. Weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever, unquote. Should it shock you? Should it surprise you? That God loves a broken heart. So in verse 13, David reminds the reader to remember the life that you left behind in verse 13. Look what he writes. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. In the New Living Translation, it reads this way. Then I will teach your ways to sinners, 
and they'll return to you. Now, here's the question for you. Is this the cry of a manipulating addict or a repentant sinner? Look, if you do all of the things that I've asked you to do, I'll do what's right. God, listen carefully. God desires to forgive and restore David. True or false? It is true. And because it's true for David, this is part of the point that I need you to understand. God desires to forgive you and restore you and me when I rebel, when you rebel against the Lord, when you live a life of rebellion or disobedience or you find yourself in a circumstance that you've done something that you clearly know is wrong. You have to begin with the premise, how does God feel about me and what does God believe about me? It's his desire to forgive David and restore David. And so that becomes the first thing, at least in this part of the study, that I want to impress you with. That your restoration and your forgiveness isn't something that is exclusively to you. The devil will whisper in your ear, your ear of course that's what you want. But Dave, God doesn't want that for you. Nothing could be further from the truth. David makes a promise to help people who find themselves in similar circumstances. Does that shock you? Where he goes, Lord, if you'll forgive me and restore me, here's what I'll do. I'll let everybody know that God is in the forgiving and restoration business. That seems pretty fair, doesn't it? I will teach transgressors. Now remember what I've already taught you about that word transgressors. The word means willful sinner. Does this mean for people who accidentally and fundamentally find themselves in a situation that they wish they weren't in? No. This is people who have done something wrong and they know that they've done something wrong. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you or they will return to you. Why? Listen carefully. Because David is forgiven. David is restored. David has returned to the Lord. You know why that's important for you? Again, what he's writing, what he's trying to tell the person who's willing to listen, if you find yourself estranged from God, distant from God, separated from God. You can return also. Here's the promise in part of this psalm. There is a way back to God for those who have experienced the worst failure, the worst sin, the worst tragedy. It doesn't get too much worse than adultery and murder. And few things are more powerful than the testimony that comes from personal experience. Do you understand what David is saying? I did these things. And God forgave me. And God restored me. I was able to return. And I was able to return under the worst of circumstances. That's the idea. And so here is part of the point that... that 
applies to each and every one of us. If God is calling you to a ministry of encouragement, if God is calling you to a ministry of discipleship, if you've ever experienced the shattering effects of a failed relationship, if you've ever lost a child, if someone you loved has been taken in your life, if you've ever had cancer, if you've ever wanted to know or if you yourself have lived a life of addiction or some sort of sexual immorality, if you've been on this endless cycle of regret and remorse and repulsion, there's forgiveness. There's restoration. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God, who are bound for heaven, think about his Jesus, this Jesus whom we declare. Think about this Jesus. Think about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. The writer of Hebrews says, I want you to think about Jesus. The writer goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, That is why we have a great high priest who has gone to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us cling to him and never stop trusting him. In verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4, it says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he has faced all the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin, unquote. Did G, did, and so here's part of the question for you. D David says, I'll teach transgressors your ways. Sinners shall be converted to you. I'll teach them. They'll return to you. Here's the big question. Did he keep his promise? What do you think? I'm going to give you a clue and, an, and a hint Turn just very quickly to Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, let's just take a moment. I'm going to read a few verses to you. <laughs> I keep turning to Job 32, but listen. Psalm 32. The blessedness of forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Pause. Who's he talking about? Huh? He is talking about himself. He's not talking about you. He's talking about himself. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Though my, through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah, which means rest and think about it. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from 
trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Stop and think about it. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which has no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice in your righteousness. A shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In other words, uh, yeah. He kept his promise. He reminded anyone and everyone who was willing to listen to him, God will forgive you. If you experience conviction and confession, you can experience cleansing. That's part of the point. Yes, he did. He experienced, he did what he said he would do. Now, why is this important to you? Will you keep your promises to the Lord? Have you ever prayed a prayer? Lord, if you'll just forgive me for this, I'll... Name your price, Lord. I'll do the unthinkable. I'll serve in the children's ministry. I'll volunteer for vacation Bible school. I'll do whatever it takes to make you happy. What is it that you promised Jesus? Whatever it is, here's my point. It isn't just simply about keeping your promise. It's about reminding the minimum of the promise. If you'll forgive me, I'll walk with you. I'll love you. I'll trust you. I'll submit myself to you. David's desire is both to preach and to pray. Look again in verses 14 and 15 with fresh eyes. David writes, he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud for your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Again, the New Living Translation puts it this way. It says, Forgive me for shedding blood. Who's he talking about? Himself. Whose blood has he shed? Uriah. He killed someone. Forgive me for shedding blood. Oh God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O oh Lord, that I may praise you. Can you imagine? I want you to think this through. Remember what we just read in Psalm 32? David hasn't sung for close to a year. His lips have been silent. He wants to praise the Lord, but how can he praise the Lord? How can he praise the Lord when guilt is pressing upon him? How can he praise the Lord if his heart is filled with stubborn rebellion? How can he praise the Lord if his heart is filled with sin and disobedience? Prayers are awkward and strained and difficult. Why? Because sin separates us from the Lord. And see, this is part of the point. God uses brokenness to restore fellowship and praise. David's heart senses his utter wickedness, which has forced his mouth shut. 
Now, I want want you to think about something for just a moment. Has God ever placed you in a position to minister to someone or to provide ministry for someone, and that someone was in big trouble, but because of your own sin, because of your own failure, because of your own wickedness, because of your own inconsistency, you refuse to open your mouth and offer hope in Jesus because you were afraid. You were afraid you would be labeled a hypocrite. Your heart even spoke to you. How dare you? How dare you open your mouth? How dare you offer hope in Christ? How dare you tell somebody that God wants to love them or forgive them or reconcile them back to himself? (laughs) Think about what's going on. For David, David knew this. David knew this all too well. How can I open my mouth? How can I offer hope? How can I open my mouth and how can I offer hope when everyone knows that I'm a hypocrite? And so he does what has to be done. The only way is to ask for and experience forgiveness. And see, that's the big hurdle. Will God love me? Will he take me back? Will he forgive me? Will he restore me? David wants preaching. And David wants praying. And David wants singing. And David wants praising. And David wants teaching. And David wants encouragement to be a way of life with him again. And look what he says. Not only does he desire to preach, and not only does he desire to pray, but he now points us to lessons. Not only from the life that we used to have, but the lessons we must never forget. And the first lesson is the lesson of guilt. Look what it says in verse 16. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The New Living Translation says, You would not be pleased with sacrifices, or I would bring them. If I brought you a burnt offering, you wouldn't accept it. Do you understand what David is saying? He's familiar with the Levitical law and the Levitical sacrifices. In the book of Leviticus, I'm just going to go over real quickly. There was a burnt offering. It was called the olah. It was a sweet aroma. It's found in Leviticus chapter 1. The method was all of, except the skin burned on the altar of the burnt offering. So there was a burnt offering. There was a grain offering. There was a peace offering. There was a sin offering. There was a trespass offering. There was all kinds of offerings that were extended through the Levitical um, Um, methodologies in order to create a mechanism for people who had transgressed. What is David saying? David has committed adultery. David has committed murder. David has committed capital crimes under the Mosaic law. David is guilty of presumptuous, and if you don't know what presumptuous means, it means willful, premeditated, calculated, planned sin. And there's no provision under the Mosaic law. There's no provision under the Levitical sacrifice. 
There's no provision for that kind of sin spree. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 12, this is what it says. Anyone arrogant enough to reject the verdict of the judge or the priest who represents the Lord your God must be put to death. Such evil must be purged from Israel. In that scripture, what if you're the evil that has to be purged? What do I do? What is David saying? The sacrifices in the Old Testament economy couldn't solve the real problem of sin. If David, if David is going to experience not just cleansing and forgiveness from what his confession has already taken place, it's going to have to be on the basis of something beyond the Old Testament economy. Because the Old Testament economy couldn't deal with the real problem of sin. Paul knew about this in the book of Romans. David knew that somehow he knew that the Mosaic Levitical ritual code was a shadow of a future Messiah. That that there was symbolism in the offering, but the substance was going to have to be in the Messiah. What kind of a sacrifice will God accept? Look what it says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not desire. Delight in burnt offering. There's no sacrifice. There's no sacrifice that he can offer. What kind of a sacrifice will satisfy God's justice? What kind of sacrifice will cleanse his sinner's heart? This is what the New Testament says. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You sing the song. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The the New Testament says, you've been purchased not with perishable things, but with the shed blood of Jesus. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace, nor wash away its stain. If David could take every cow and every lamb And every goat and every pigeon, if he could kill every animal in Israel, if he could kill every animal in Jordan, if he could kill every animal in the Mediterranean Rim, if he could find his way into Africa and kill every animal there, if he could find his way into Asia and kill every animal there, if he could go to Central and South America and kill every animal that's there, it wouldn't make the stain go away. So how will it go away? It's only by faith. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. David looks beyond the ritual system to God himself. David is aware of his total sin, his total guilt, the total inability of the religious system that he has grown up with in order to make the terrible transgressions go away. And so he appeals to God himself. He appeals to God himself to save him. 
If you're trusting in some religious system, if you're trusting in some religious act, if you're trusting in some religious obligation to cleanse your sin, then you're going to be in bad shape. Do you, do you understand why the New Testament writers told the early Christians they are purchased not with the blood of bulls or goats? They're not purchased with silver and gold, but the instrument of their redemption is the sacrifice of Jesus who is the son of David. God himself is going to have to be the sacrifice because God is the one who's offended. It's his holiness and his justice that's been offended. And so David has to learn the lesson of grace. And if you've never learned the lesson of guilt, you'll never learn the lesson of grace. If you think that there's something that you can do to make you right with God other than embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're going to be in trouble. Look what it says in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Now think about what this passage is saying. It's a broken heart. It's a contrite heart. What in the world do you do when there's no religion on the entire planet Earth that can save you? The right answer, David says, you're going to have to save me. The wickedness and the emptiness and the humility of my heart, you're going to have to save me. There was a movie that came out called John Dillinger, and uh, there was a gang member in his uh, gang uh, named Lester Joseph Gillis. And in the movie, he comes to the end of the line. He's seated at an old farm table with an older farm couple. And, and as he's sitting at the table and he's running from the FBI, she has a Bible on the table. And she asks the outlaw if she can give him a Bible. And his reply was the reply of many people in the world. He looks up and he says, I've killed men. And the outlaw's eye focused on the Bible. And then he looked away from the Bible and he stared out into space. And in the movie, the character says, I've enjoyed my sin. No, there's no Bible for someone like me. And... In the movie, Melvin Purvis and the G-Men show up and Gillis runs into a field and the government officials line up like a firing squad and they shoot him dead. It's fiction. The real story is totally different. The real story is that he was with his wife and told her to run across the field and he started shooting at the FBI agents and he killed, this person killed more FBI agents than anyone in the 20th century. His name? Babyface Nelson. In the movie, no religion in the world can save him. He needs a savior. But he refused 
to look beyond the rules and the regulations. He refused to look to a God of mercy. He refused to look to a God of grace. He refused to look at a God who was willing to forgive him and and cleanse him and restore him because this God is willing to take the penalty on himself. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The gospel is God is willing to take the penalty on himself. My friend R.C. Sproul uses this brilliant illustration. He says, imagine you're in an ice cream shop and it's a dollar a scoop and this kid comes in and he orders two scoops and he reaches into his pocket and he only has a dollar and he looks up and he says, I'm so sorry, my mother only gave me a dollar. I don't have any way to pay for the rest of the ice cream. And R.C. says, what are you going to do you reach into your pocket and you pull out a dollar and you give it to the guy and now the kid gets to eat his ice cream he said but imagine the scenario changes imagine the kid gets the two scoops reaches into his pocket and he has a dollar but he decides to get up and make a run for it now the kid makes a run for it. He's trying to escape this, this thing that's happening to him. He doesn't have enough money to pay for the ice cream. And he runs away and a police officer catches him and brings him back to the shop. And the guy says, hey, I'm willing to give you $2 if you let the kid go. Is that going to satisfy the debt? No, because guess what? A crime has been committed. Crime has been committed. And the only person who can let the kid go is the person who has been injured. And even under certain legal circumstances, even that can't happen. If a person commits a crime, and even if you decide to let him go, sometimes the state reserves the right to prosecute them. And in the world in which we live, Every single sin becomes a crime against God. And how do you satisfy an infinite crime against an infinite God? He's going to have to take He's going to have to take the penalty. Jesus the Lord Jesus, beyond religion, beyond rules, beyond the Old Testament sacrifice, Jesus seeks a loving friendship and relationship with sinful men and women. Jesus comes in time and space, is born of a virgin, lives the life that you can't live, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and becomes the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. David could just as easily have thrown himself on Nathan the prophet and said, there's no Bible for me. I've killed a man and I've committed adultery. Just take me out to the outskirts of the gate and throw stones at me. David must have sobbed when Nathan confronted him with his sin. David, a broken man, lies in a heap of brokenness at the feet of the prophet. And immediately the prophet says, God has taken away your sin. Isn't that the most outrageous thing that you've ever heard? God has taken away your sin. There are people who read the passage in the scripture and the story of David and say, how can it be that easy? 
How can you kill somebody, commit adultery, ruin people's lives, and then just have the prophet say, God hath put away thy sin? That is total grace. And that's what Jesus does. God takes away your sin. No lamb, no ox, no sin offering, no trespass offering. He doesn't offer a single offering. The only thing that he has from Nathan the prophet to go on is, God hath put away thy sin. Do you know what that means? I want you to think about this. That means the only thing that David has is the word of God. God has taken away your sin. You read 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You read all the promises in the Bible about Jesus loving you and Jesus being willing to forgive you for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. This is the testimony of the Bible. That God sent Jesus to die for sins. David learned something that day. Something that many people still struggle to understand. What is the answer to the question? What does God want from me? What do you want from me? A broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. What does God want from the sinner? A broken heart. What will a broken heart provide? Entry, a willingness to come to God on God's terms, a willingness to experience forgiveness on the basis that God has established forgiveness. It is in Christ. What does God want from the sinner? A broken heart. What does a broken heart allow? The bloody sacrifice will come from the cross. What sacrifice do you bring? God comes with his son. You come with your heart. A broken heart. A contrite heart. And then he talks about undeserved grace. Look what it says in in verses 18 and 19. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Now critics with no discernment have looked at verses 18 and 19 and they go, what? What are you saying? Verses 18 and 19. These don't belong in this psalm. That's because the critics don't understand. That's because they haven't read the whole Bible and they haven't read the life of David and they haven't read the New Testament. The Lord includes these verses because broken people need something more than just their brokenness. What more do they need? They need a vision 
of restoration. They need a vision of restoration. They need to know that there's something beyond their failure. They need to know that there's something beyond their sin. They need to know that there's even something beyond their brokenness of future restoration. And so David points ahead to the end of the age, a new city. Now think about this, a new city and a new king, a future king. Who do you suppose that future king is? That's exactly right. It's Jesus. He's talking about a new Jerusalem and a new king. And in this new Jerusalem, the new king dwells in righteousness. It's David's own son. A new city where, with new walls and new leadership. Repentant Israel will find peace and security in God himself when God himself rules the city. And you'll have peace and security when Jesus himself rules inside the citadel of your heart. That's the idea. Now David looks beyond his circumstances. He looks beyond his sin. He looks into the future. And and this should become something that is powerful in your life because there is life after brokenness. There's life after brokenness. Sometimes when your life has been sifted like wheat. Sometimes when you've been ground like powder. Sometimes when the tears have come and the anguish seems like a heavy blanket. You throw off the blanket of depression. The blanket of sorrow. The blanket of regret. You throw off all of these blankets. And all of a sudden the future shows up. And the future that shows up is the future where Jesus Christ is King and Lord. That's why this is here. Because this is a part of the prayer of brokenness. It's the prayer for the future. David prays for Zion. He prays for Jerusalem. David prays for the people. He prays for the work that God has called him to do in in Jerusalem. Damian Kyle, who is the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Modesto, has a wonderful little booklet. And he rightly points out in his little book, The Place of Brokenness in the Life of the Believer. He writes, you would have thought God would have fired David after his failure. The Lord could have said, David, thank you for the psalm. I just wanted to hear you say that you were wrong before I get rid of you. But he didn't put David through all of that to fire him. He put him through all that to break him. Now that he was a broken leader, God can return to the work that he desires to do through the leader. To bless a people and to bless a city through that leader. God has brought you through the brokenness so that you can fulfill your ministry. So that you can actually be useful and helpful. There's still a job to be done. There's still walls to be built. There's still people to serve. But God wants you to serve the Lord with humility and dependence and gratitude 
with a constant sense of sin's guilt and God's grace. So do you want to serve the Lord? If you want to serve the Lord, then this should be your reasonable expectation. A lifetime of breaking. A lifetime. That's what you should expect. If you think the brokenness part, that's a part of the past, right? I wish I could say that that's true, but it's not true. God doesn't want to break you for the sheer discipline of breaking. But when you're going through the humbling process, the broken process, the breaking process, what it does is it makes us manageable and it makes us useful and it makes us stable and it makes us safe. Remember what I said? That apart from Jesus Christ, you are not to be trusted. And apart from Jesus Christ, I am not to be trusted. David, like David, we learn from the past. We commit to the Lord. We trust the blood of Jesus. And then we move forward. You know, it was Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in, in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understands the secret. Brokenness is wholeness. Weakness is strength. You know, Martin Luther wrote, Never are men more unfit <laughs> than when they think themselves most fit and best prepared for their duty. Never more fit than when most humbled and shamed and under a sense of their unfitness, unquote. David was ready to be used again. He was ready to be used again. And guess what? One of the most difficult challenges facing the church is restoring to fellowship Christians who have fallen, who have stumbled, who have sinned. And they've gone through the process of conviction. And they've gone through the process of confession. And they've gone through the process of cleansing. But now it's the time of consecration. It's a time to get up again. It's a time to be used by God again. You know, Paul was both severe and tender. When the Corinthians were dealing with the man who was sexually immoral with his own father's wife, he said, Paul wrote, kick him out. And when the man was repentant, Paul wrote, bring him back. He's had enough. Brokenness is not constant regret for the failures of the past. Brokenness is confidence that God genuinely delights in brokenness and contrition and that the Lord may allow you to be wounded, but he won't allow you to, to bleed to death. It's the idea that you can come to him on the basis of Christ and his shed blood and that return isn't just a hope or a possibility or a probability, but it is a certainty because that's what God has done in Christ. 
In Psalm 147, verse 3, it says, He heals the brokenhearted, binding up their wounds. Aren't you glad it doesn't say, He forgets about the brokenhearted, and He leads you to bleed to death in your own sinful circumstances. It doesn't say that. Isaiah 57, verse 15, this is what it says. Isaiah 57, 15, The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity... The Holy One. This is what he says. I will live in that high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. The writer of Isaiah says, the high and lofty one. The one who inhabits eternity. The Holy One. Now imagine the picture. Here is God in all of his righteousness. In all of his holiness. In all of his splendor. In that place in heaven where no one can go. You would think that in order to get there. You have to be more good than you've ever been. And you have to soar higher than you've ever been. But then Isaiah says exactly the opposite. Do you want to know God? Do you want to experience God? Do you want to walk with God? Then you want to, do you want a fellowship with God? Then you've got to go lower than you've ever been in humility and contrition. The writer of Isaiah says, I refresh the humble and I give new courage to those with repentant hearts. Courage? What kind of courage? You know, in the magazine Pursuit, Author and evangelist Luis Palau writes, quote, Thank God his grace isn't fair. A couple, Luis Palau writes, I won't do it in my Luis Palau voice. But some of you know Luis Palau? This is Luis Palau. He's a South American evangelist. He's wonderful. But he writes, A couple of years ago, one of my nephews, I'll call him Kenneth, was near death. He had AIDS. And during a family reunion in the hills of Northern California, Kenneth and I broke away for a short walk. He was a hollow shell laboring for breath. Quote, Kenneth, you know you're going to die any day, I said. Do you have eternal life? Your parents agonize. I must know. Luis, I know God has forgiven me, and I'm going to heaven. For several years since his early teens, Kenneth had practiced homosexuality, and more than that, in rebellion against God and his parents, he flaunted his lifestyle. Kenneth, how can you say that, I replied. You've rebelled against God, you've made fun of the Bible, you've hurt your family terribly, and now you've got eternal life just like that? Luis, when the doctor said I had AIDS, I realized what a fool I'd been. We know that, I said bluntly, but deliberately, because Kenneth knew full well that the Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is sin. But did you really repent? I did repent. And I know God has had mercy on me. But my dad won't believe me. You've rebelled in his face all your life, I said. You've broken his heart. Kenneth looked me straight in the eye. 
I know that the Lord has forgiven me. Did you open your heart to Jesus? Yes, Luis, yes. As we put our arms around each other and prayed and talked some more, I became convinced that Jesus had forgiven all of Kenneth's rebellion and washed away all of his sin. And several short months later, he went to be with the Lord at age 25. My nephew, like the repentant thief on the cross, did not deserve God's grace. I don't either. None of us do. I like that. Because Luis Palau could just as easily have said, David didn't deserve God's grace. But aren't you glad he received it? Aren't you glad that it's available to you? Aren't you glad that you're chosen, adopted, and accepted, not on the basis of what you've done or what you failed to do, but on the ultimate sacrifice, the broken Savior? He willfully allows his body to be taken to a Roman cross. He is nailed to that cruel piece of wood. He's suspended between heaven and earth. God will come. David's son will come. Because you see, in order to experience God's grace and God's mercy... Jesus has to satisfy God's justice. Because each and every one of you are like the little kid who ran out of the ice cream shop and you refuse to pay the bill. And in order to have the bill paid, Jesus is going to have to pay the bill. And he will. Fully. Finally. Completely. We're going to have communion in just a moment, and I'm going to have the guys come up. And I just have one thing that I want you to do. I want you to be able to hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. And during the course, as the worship team comes out, and as we sing some songs, and as we're handing out communion, if you have a a little bit of an opportunity, I would encourage you, To ask and answer the question, am I still struggling with guilt? Am I still struggling with unforgiveness? Am I still struggling with sin? Remember what David's psalm tells us. That God wants to forgive you and to restore you. And he's willing to do exactly that. If you have an opportunity as we pray, as we sing, turn back to Psalm 32. Reread David's fulfillment, his willingness to make good on his promise. 
Blessed, oh how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you want to come from a place of depression and isolation and guilt and detachment, you're going to have to do exactly what David did. Nathan comes to David and says, the Lord has put away your sin. You're going to have to be willing to believe what Jesus said from the cross. It's finished. I did it. Your sin's been forgiven. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. Lord, I pray that as we've paused in David's difficult journey, Lord, as we've been with him, Lord, as we've experienced the same conviction, Lord, as David's mouth has mouthed the same confession, Lord, as he's cried out for cleansing and consolation, Lord, as he wants to experience what it means. pray and to preach and to sing and to praise. Lord, I pray for that person who in that empty and dark place wants to come back to you. And if that's you and you know it's you, just cry out to God. Just whisper that prayer. Lord, David came back. David asked for forgiveness. David asked for God's grace on nothing more than on the basis of the word of God. Do I dare do that? Lord, we know that you'll make good your promise. That a broken and a contrite heart you won't despise. And Lord, in that place of brokenness, in that place of repentance, in that place of a willingness to cry out to you and to trust you, Lord, I pray that that everyone here will experience wholeness and wellness, forgiveness and grace, cleansing and consecration. And Lord, we pray that we could make a promise that we'll tell other people that you're in the business of forgiving sin. You're willing to forgive people like me. In Jesus' name, amen.